0: Welcome to Right Spokane Perspective with your host, Tim
1: and Shannon.
0: It's opinion, fact, information, and your alert system. Stay tuned and enjoy the show. And welcome to Right Spokane Perspective. On this Monday episode, it is Mary Dye Monday because we have Mary Die on the line with us today. She is a Washington state legislator, and she's going to be telling us about some of the things that she's got going on. Before we jump into that information, some inspiration.
1: Always got to have inspiration. Today, it's on God's unexpected ways. The pastor squinted over his sermon, holding the pages close to his face so he could see the words. He was extremely nearsighted and read each carefully chosen phrase with an unimposing monotone voice. But God's spirit moved through Jonathan Edwards' preaching to fan the revival fires of the first great awakening and bring thousands to faith in Christ. God often uses unexpected things to accomplish his perfect purposes. Writing about his plan to draw wayward humanity near through Jesus' loving death for us on the cross, Paul concludes, "...but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The world expected divine wisdom to look like our own and to come with irresistible force." Instead, Jesus came humbly and gently to save us from our sins and so became for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. The eternal and all-wise God became a human baby who would grow to adulthood and suffer and die to be raised again in life in order to lovingly show us the way home to him. He loves to use humble means and people to accomplish great things we could never achieve in our own strength. If we're willing, he may even use us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your unexpected ways. Help us to follow you closely today so that we may be used for what's pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. Well, I think what's pleasing is being good stewards of our resources, and we're going to be talking a little bit about that today on this Mary Die Monday episode. Representative Mary Die is on the line with us. She is a Washington state legislator, and she was elected in office by her constituents, and those constituents are affected by the dam system. And we're going to talk about that today. I know we want to have her on again in the future when the legislative session uh, moves a little forward to, to help apprise us of the things that the legislature is doing so we can be active with all of our legislators. But I just want to welcome you on the show, Mary. Thanks for your time.
2: I'm delighted to be on. Thank you for inviting me.
0: So just to start out, you know, tell the people, who is Representative Mary Dye?
2: Well, I wasn't always Representative Mary Dye. I've been um, married to a Pomeroy farmer for 36 years and uh, have enjoyed the life of being side-by-side, farm help for him, driving tractor, and raised our family in Pomeroy. Our babies were really little when we first were active on the Save Our Dams campaign, in the mid 90s and they are the poster children for the save our dams campaign and you know here we are at, at this point in my life and still fighting the exact same fight with the same arguments being put forward only it seems like this time it's even more difficult to overcome the threat to our our power system and our inland waterway. Yeah,
0: I, and it seems like a, a strange time to have that argument, especially when I, I know that you're amongst travel right now. You've pulled off the side of the road here in uh, eastern Washington, central Washington, to have this conversation. So I thank you again for that, because I know you're heading back to the legislature to, to do that important work to re- represent your constituents that are farmers. And, and so you you had this battle back in the 90s when your kid kids were young and then you found yourself in the 2000s uh, climbing off the tractor and leaving the farm during the legislative session to fight for your constituents and these dams are 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 so important for so many reasons but at this time when they want to move us to everything electric electric heat electric cars they want to get rid of dams the insanity of that just is profound to me
2: well, it frustrates me a lot because you're right, electrification will require a tremendous amount of new infrastructure to be built. And the choices that are being made by the ideologues in the legislature and at the governor's office are driving us to an instable grid, a grid that's dependent on intermittent and non-dispatchable energy. And I think that to think that you could replace hydropower, which is already built and working well with a solar and wind, which, as you know, look at the weather this evening. It's fogged in, the wind isn't blowing, and it's pouring rain, and it's planning on being that way for a number of days. Over this winter, we've had times of inversion where we were fogged in and no wind blowing for as many as 30, 40, 50 days at a time. And less than 1% of the grid has wind and solar on it during the winter. When we've had extreme cold weather, and you know, it, to put at risk people's lives and livelihoods in this manner is is unimaginable in my mind.
0: Well, we but look the at the thing- blackouts in California, where the most of California doesn't see the temperatures get into the single digits, and of course, that's what we saw not too long ago here. And if those electric heaters that we're also supposed to switch over to aren't working people will freeze to death. And I think the sustenance that we have in electricity from the dams is key, but it's not just the electricity. It's also the ecosystem. These dams were built and there are ecosystems now thriving because of the amount of water that we have. Of course, that water is, they don't have battery storage for electricity. That's why solar and wind don't work. But we basically have battery storage in the form of H2O behind these dams. So you got on-demand electricity when you need it but we also have the sustenance for farmers and that's kind of where I wanted to you know touch basis because we've talked about it in the past as far as electricity goes but when I look at all the rules they are coming up with government folks there's just a plethora of ridiculous rules in stream flows and the use of wells and all sorts of things the biggest sustainer of life is water and central and eastern Washington depend on irrigation to provide food to literally the world, and Mary Dye has been a part of that her whole life. So let's dig into that side of it.
2: Okay, well we'll dig into it. Um, one of the things that troubles me the most is that when you're making your living on the land with farming, nature teaches you a lot of hard lessons, and if you aren't really focused on the truth that is being told to you by the land, you will fail miserably and do great harm to the ecology of the land. And so it's always that truth-seeking moment when you're in the practice of agriculture and stewardship that drives you to seek to understand what is that land telling me? And you gain that through generational knowledge. I mean, we're standing on the shoulders of generations before us that have cracked the code on how to farm in Eastern Washington and how to steward that land better and better. And it's a, it, it's an iterative process year in, year out. And I've had 36 chances so far in my life to try and make it work every year, right? 36 right. years of getting practice doing that. And the thing that and gen- really generations
0: ad- generations of knowledge poured into those 36 years, I
2: would say, absolutely. too. Absolutely. So we carry that generational knowledge from generation to generation. And you cannot replace that- So, you know, if you lose a farmer off the land, you don't know what kind of of information that you will lose forever that will not be recoverable, right? Because they carry that from their grandfather and their father and and great-grandfather even as to how to steward that land properly. And there's secrets that will just die with like a stupid government regulation that will make you farm differently. And then you realize that, well, wait a minute didn't grand grandpa tell me this and he was right. Right. And so I want to
0: use this analogy a little bit because so many people are not farmers that listen to the show. And so it's, it's like having children, you have children young, there's something going on with the child. And you're like, I don't know what this rash looking thing is. I don't know. Let's go to grandma's house. Grandma's like, Oh, that's what this is. You use this ointment three days, you know, and they just have this solution. You're like, okay, well, WebMD said that my child was going to die, right? You know, because that wisdom is just not just grasped on the internet. There's, when you're talking about farming in an area, a region, everywhere's different. You go to the top of the hill outside of the Yakima Valley, the farming is going to be done somewhat differently than in the base of the valley. And so, those generational truths that create great farms, great industry can be lost if we shut down uh, farms and turn them into solar farms. But I look so at
2: the this. piece that I'm trying to get to also is that in this situation, like we're having now with this debate, things that really upset me is when people don't tell the truth. And so you'll see in the papers, you'll see all over the place that the four lower Snake River dams, what they said to me on Thursday was that they only produce 812 megawatts. Well, that just is fundamentally not true. They have nameplate capacity for over 3,000 megawatts. And what they're doing is by judges' rulings to flush more and more water over the spillways and less and less water through the turbines and adding more and more wind and solar capacity so that the turbines have to shut down all the time to accommodate those electrons that are not dispatchable. When the wind is blowing, you have to take it onto the grid. And it just, to me, it's so disingenuous to say that the capacity is less and less when in fact it has a lot of capacity. And when it was, Extremely hot last summer, and California told people to unplug their electric cars because they were gonna have a massive blackout. And the four lower snake river dams opened up all of their turbines and they saved California well, with we their just... three thousand megawatt capacity. And yeah. I mean, I can take one thing. I mean, if it's a fair fight, you tell the truth. But don't tell me that those dams have
1: 812 megawatts when, in fact, they have more than that. So I was going to say, quite frankly, I mean, the dams never stop working. They can work 24 hours a day and provide constant power for the things that we need, especially in in eastern Washington. We are selling it to California, so it does keep them going and other places. But our solar panels, solar panels turn off at sunset. Once the sun goes down, you're not getting any power from those. And the wind turbines, they quit working at a negative 27. So in the last two weeks, we have experienced in eastern Washington some of the coldest weather and how on earth would we be able to heat our houses if we didn't have the, 20, the constant 24-hour flow right, exactly. of our hydroelectricity? Well, cabin? and
0: I've got to say, you know, we had a, a former president that I'll probably remember this quote more than anything my whole life. Darling, darling, I'd love to watch television. Darling, is the wind blowing, darling? And it, it just, it's just so <laughs> absurd to me because if you know this region like the farmers do and the foresters do and obviously the weather people don't anymore because they're not advocating for truth we have wind in the spring and we have wind in the fall summertime we don't have a lot of wind but there's still water behind those dams in the springtime we got lots of water behind those dams and and like you said they're making room in the grid for these other utilities in solar and wind when we really don't need them and we have an excess of water. So a lot of these policies don't make sense. California recognizes hydropower as green energy, so they buy ours to fulfill the mandates from their legislature on having renewable energy. Our legislature has not allowed the dam's hydropower to be considered renewable energy, which is why we as ratepayers are paying more uh, to make the land uglied with wind turbines and solar units. So I think we've got to have an honest discussion like Representative Mary Dye has said. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back because this damn discussion needs to continue. We'll be right back.
1: Today, we want to think about how our founding fathers established a nearly foolproof system of government. Its checks and balances are among the most noteworthy aspects of our republic. Our government, when functioning as it was designed, champions our liberties and prevents our government from becoming tyrannical and oppressive. By and large, however, the American people are sadly uninformed about democratic principles and their role in safeguarding our freedoms. What's more, the clearly defined lines between the three branches of government are becoming blurred and the United States citizens are paying the price. We must continue to pray that God protects our way of life asking him that he would allow men and women in office who are committed to serving their constituents with integrity. We must remain in prayer for our elections, asking God to promote our fellow citizens to become more involved in this process. Voting is both a duty and a privilege, and the outcomes of our political races are critical in determining the future course of our nation. If you would take a moment to visit our website, www. Dot RightSpokanePerspective.com. We have a list of all of our elected officials and let's all take a moment to pray for our officials and for the laws that they're looking at passing. Now back to our show.
0: And welcome back to Mary Die Monday here on Right Spokane Perspective. Yes, Representative Mary Dye, she is well-versed in the dam discussion because she has seen how positive these dams generationally have been for farmers. In fact, she's on the side of the road on a Washington State Highway, not too far away from Uh, the largest source of hops, I think, in the world in the Yakima Valley, as well as uh, not too far away from where the largest amount of potatoes are grown. I think the Tri-Cities area produces a lot of potatoes. You got the Walla Walla sweet onions. People think about Idaho uh, being the number one potato state, but it's actually Washington. And so these Infrastructure pieces that were put together in the Columbia River Basin Project many decades ago, I think about 100 years ago almost, uh, as it came about and, and unfolded. We funded these things, our federal government, so that we could have these resources that have really served Washington well. And if we take these kinds of things away with what we're seeing with this discussion of the dam removal, we are going to see literally towns in Washington state dry up and blow away. So we can't let this discussion uh, escape us that the Snake River dams are not the end of the, the dam removal discussion. So, Mary, jump back into the conversation. Let's talk about uh, the ecological damage and the fact that people that have really good information, like you talked about, seeking the truth, are being left out. Of these conversations.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, when you look at what choices are being made, they're being made by a judge in Portland, and they're being made by lawsuits and mediations that happen in, in secret that are not allowed to be released until after the decision has been made, and the people that actually should have a seat at the table like the Northwest River Partners who submitted over 300 pages of documents that were wholly disregarded, like the barge operators that talk about the result of the mediation, which will put way more water over the spillways, which threatens the viability of the fish that go over the spillways because it increases the nitrogen in the water, and they will die of gas bubble disease if we put too much water over those spillways. It's dangerous to fish. And, and the fact that The currents in those rivers make it entirely unsafe for shipping. And not only that, we have a very robust cruise boat industry and the people that are on those ships, if the water currents become too swift and too unstable, it will threaten the safety of those cruises. And so to me, I, I mean, the people that have a stake in that, including all of the like a large percentage of the U.S. wheat that goes out, um, all, uh, all of the other industries well, outside uh, of our region that are affected. But the fact is, is that those fish are being threatened by decisions that are being made on an ideological basis and not on the basis of the facts in the river that the fish will be harmed by the mediation well, decision.
0: And, and they talk about these things as if, the, you know, the decisions obviously are happening in a vacuum, which they shouldn't be. Different people should be able to discuss this. I should be able to be part of this conversation. You know, I've had fish tanks. I know that you can over-oxygenate the water. You can, you know, create environmental hazards very easily just in a fish tank. And these people are talking about rivers that have total ecosystems that are built because of the dams ecosystems that were basically created because of the abundance of water. And if we take those dams out, not only is the silt going to be a problem that's uh, at the base of those dams, the recovery process to me is unimaginable. Not only um, the flood mitigation that we have in our communities because of these dams, the jobs. And then, like you said, Mary, the industries that use the shipping, what kind of impacts are we going to have to, to food prices? And then the environmentalists that say that they're helping the environment with this, if all that food is still going to make it to market, it's going to be on trucks.
2: And, and the thing I'm concerned about also is what if they're wrong? You know, they don't seem to care enough to know that they're already increasing the, the um, spill over the spillways when we have a $100 million flume that safely transports the smolts and gives options to move the smolts by a barge or by a truck or in river. And we can have a diversity of options so that we secure the result. We know that at least two of the three will work, correct? Right. And if the conditions in the river are not safe or good, they can switch and, and change change gears. And the, and the, what if they are wrong? What if they're wrong and we find out that we have warmer seasons, we're in a warming cycle, and the river is too warm? Right now, those fish can go down into lower um parts of the reservoirs and stay cool during the, the heat of the summer of the of the day and then they can go up in the cool of the morning before dawn and they can pasture along the shallower, Um, parts of the reservoir, and it gives us that option. We have the options of releasing ice-cold water from Dvorak, and we can cool the river all the way down to the Tri-Cities. We have levers that we can control, and we have 17 state, federal, and local, and tribal agencies working at Lower Granite Dam that are watching and maintaining the health of those those systems, and the idea that the fish are not improving in their population, you can mark it from every single time that judge makes a decision to throw more water over the spillway, read, you know, change the river operations. You can see declines in salmon populations the subsequent two to three years when the returns come back, and you know you you look at the hatchery system it. The lack of commitment by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to invest and maintain proper hatchery infrastructure and improve the hatchery infrastructure. There's new technology, round pools that strengthen the smolts so that they're ready to go out into the natural environment. Those things need to be invested in, but will they? No. They're very stubborn about not getting the investments needed to m- make a more Um, abundant supply of fish in the river and nothing to be done with dealing with the predators and other things. It's just not farmed well. They're not listening to nature. They're not taking the truth from the river and doing what's right for the fish. If it's fish they care about, that's one thing, but it does not appear that that's the case in the result of this mediation. In fact, it looks like it's something entirely different. Well,
0: it looks like it's going to be something that damages the fish. Not only are we going to change the uh, whole ecosystem for the fish that are already there. But it, the fish that now have gotten used to the dam system and the fish ladders that have been put in place. I mean, that's one of the big things I've, I hear from folks is that put more fish ladders in. When I think about the, uh, you know, the industries, you know, obviously we talked about, you know, the farming, the shipping, the, the grain, all of those things. But you also have the the fishermen, I mean I don't I don't think those bass boats are going to float very well in the trickle of water come summertime when there's no dam there and the water is The other just... thing
2: is that water, that trickle of water, it may be too warm and the salmon may not choose to go up in that warm water.
0: Yeah, I mean and it, it could who's decimate never thought
2: about that.
0: It could decimate the salmon that we currently have swimming back, true. Yeah, and and right? I think
2: And lastly, we have just discovered in Idaho last September the first infestation on the Snake River watershed, on the Columbia Basin—you know, the Columbia Basin watershed, the fourth largest watershed on the continent—we've just discovered quagga and zebra mussels. We are the only watershed in the nation that did not have that invasive species, and we can do a whole lot of stuff. But if we do not contain that infestation, it will decimate the salmon population in the entire watershed. And so now we're in an emergency where we need to really focus on monitoring and containing an invasive species that was never there before. And we have to come into an agreement with people that have been pretty much at odds with each other since the 90s. And we have to sit down at the table and say, how are we going to contain this infestation of of invasive species on this watershed that was discovered just below Twin Falls? There's seven impoundment reservoirs with dams between Twin Falls and the confluence of the Clearwater and the Snake. If those quagga mussels get established in our hydro system, it will cost our state $100 million a year to deal with the damage that they will cause. But that's not the whole story. They will destroy that water for fish survival in that river. And if if we don't deal with it together, if we can't You know, bury the hatchet about all this other stuff that we're talking about and and sit down and comprehensively deal with this um, invasive species right now, we're in trouble.
0: And I think those are the things that, you know, fish and wildlife and when you're talking about sport fishermen, you know, and I see that some sport fishermen, "Ah, we want more salmon. But there's not going to be water for them to all be out in their boats fishing the salmon. And of course, the regulations going to have to change because that population is going to change. But I don't think we should, like you say, deal with the hypothetical that we don't know what would happen if we did some of these actions. But we do know that you can do over spillage, which damaging the fish you brought up. And we know that we have these other challenges that they should be dealing with uh, these invasive species. But I also think that in the regions not that necessarily you represent but other state representatives represent when you're talking about water supply when we talk about municipal water systems that are along these rivers do they have enough access to water if you took the you know the in-stream flow if you took the hydraulic pressure from these you know waterways away when you tear out the dams what's going to happen to those cities municipal water supplies do we have that question answered
2: we have a really good um, con- a contrasting model of success in the Columbia basin. And I do represent cities all the way up to Grand Coulee Dam now after redistricting. And I'm delighted to be working with the good people in, in Lincoln County. Um, sad to lose Othello, but uh, they'll always remain my friends and, you know, What we've been able to do is form a network of people across the entire region and have the support of our partners at the USDA and the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation working together with signed memos of understanding, sharing each other's environmental impact statements and providing funding to really remedy not only the agricultural problems in the Columbia Basin project, but also to deal with the fact that we have about 30 municipalities plus about 125,000 people that are being impacted by a policy decision that was made way back in 1968 when they suspended construction on the Columbia Basin project. Building out the Columbia Basin with surface water will restore those aquifers, They will provide a more secure and sustainable municipal water supply while replacing deep wells that are currently going dry and putting clean, fresh surface water delivery through the Columbia Basin Project. It was a dream that was started back in April 7th, of 1922, when that was first written into law, construction of the Grand Coulee Dam didn't begin till 33, and then 44 was when we began the um, construction of the Columbia Basin Project, and we built out 670,000 acres with a couple of canals, the the low East Low Canal and the Quincy part of the district and Yakima, all of that is irrigated 670,000 acres, a completed portion. And then we stopped and there's envisioned 1.02 million acres of irrigated agriculture in Eastern Washington, which is huge.
0: And I I don't, I don't want to cut you off here, but I have to just because of time, but I want to have you back on because folks, if you didn't Just consume all of that. Go to the podcast so you can listen to Mary Dye go over those specifics of the Columbia River Basin project again. And we're going to have her back to talk about not just the Columbia River Basin, but also what Washington State Legislature has going on because it is so eminently important right now to stand up for Washington farmers. You just heard hundreds of thousands of acres of food production are being threatened by people that have a movement to get rid of dams. And it just doesn't stop at the Snake River Dams. So we've got to be involved in this conversation as citizens because, for one, I like the lights to work when I flip the switch. I like the fact that there's food in the grocery store. And I like the fact that Washington farmers and Washington industries are feeding the world. And we need that to continue. So thanks again, Mary Dye, for coming on the Mary Dye Monday episode. And we want to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. All that being said, we'll be with you folks again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Right Spokane Perspective. We are sponsored by Right Spokane Perspective LLC and made possible by advertisers you hear and contributions from listeners like you.